What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. questions that I assume all wrestlers have been asked dozens of times. What? Is this a good business? Yeah, it's a good business. I wouldn't be in it if it wasn't. Why is it a good business? Because only the tough survive. That's the reason you ain't in it. And this punk holding the camera reading he ain't in it. Reading these rednecks out here ain't in it because it's a tough business. That's terrific. What? Is that all you got? I'll ask you the standard question. You know? Standard question. I think this is fake. You think it's fake? What's that? Is that fake? Huh? What the hell's wrong with you? That's open hand slap, huh? You think it's fake? Dave, the Redneck Dulce, as the fans call you. You see something like this happen, it's got to be upsetting to you. It don't upset me at all, baby. Let me tell you, I think it's great. You know what I mean? If you're going to go on the hunt, you got to be able to run with the big boys. If he can't run with the big boys, he said, get out. He shouldn't come out here. Last time I was in San Francisco, I went downtown looking for a woman. You know what I mean? I wanted a woman. I couldn't find a woman. I found a lot of men that look like women. Now you, Hulk Hogan, you belong in San Francisco. What's wrong with you, Gene? I'm telling you like it is, baby. You belong in San Francisco. That's your kind of place. That's your kind of people. Because you've never had a woman, baby. And now I'm challenging you. I'm challenging you. That's right, baby. Let me tell you something here. I said back here a while ago, Buddy Rhodes, I never met this guy in my life, baby. I've never heard of the guy's name before I come here. I've been all over the world, baby. I've been to Japan maybe seven, eight times, baby. Germany, hey, Middle East, it don't make any difference. The doctor, wherever he roams, I don't come out here and brag to the people, baby. I don't come out here and run it down because it ain't none of their business. Now, you talking about having a dog muzzle, you're going to put on the doctor. 
Well, you're right, baby. You can't talk when you got a muzzle on. But there's one damn thing about it, baby. I ain't never seen the man that can put a muzzle on me. And you sure can't, boy. Only thing you remind me of, baby, is a Pillsbury Doughboy. The little boy, they poked their finger in his side. And you talking about gifts, spending money, running it down. Let me tell you something, boy. I spent more on my car last week giving chips out to them people who polished my car than you spent on every gift here, son. So don't come out here bragging about who you are and what you are and what you're gonna do and who you're gonna command and who you're gonna be boss of. You ain't being boss of nothing, boy, especially me. I'm number one, me. You talking about uno, pronto, all this jazz, rap stuff. Well, I don't go for it, baby, and I don't need it. But you remember, baby, Dr. D and number one, that's all. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you today and powered by our TMPT Con 2. Head on down to Richmond, Virginia on Saturday, May 19th, 2018, and join John, myself, and a host of wrestling superstars, including Kevin Nash, Eric Bischoff, the franchise Shane Douglas, Henry Godwin, and many, many more as we celebrate the rich history of Richmond professional wrestling with the great fans of Richmond, Virginia, and do it at TMPTCon2. You can head on over to our website, which is TMPTofWrestling.com, and you can get your tickets now to join us in Richmond, Virginia, on Saturday, May 19th, 2018, at TMPTCon2. And stay tuned a little bit later on in the show so you can hear about an addition to the TMPTCon2 lineup that we're working on and hopefully we'll bring to you in the next couple of shows so with all of that being said you saw the name of the episode it is an absolute thrill to welcome on to today's show the one and only dr d david schultz and if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined by my tag team partner the one and only john Paz. and when john and i put our show together we've talked about it many many times there's guys who you put on a list of the unobtainable and i gotta tell you dr d david schultz would probably be right up at the top of that list but he's here to join us today and talk about his brand new book I'm Not Fake, the story of Dr. D, David Schultz. And finally, David Schultz gets the opportunity to share his story in the way he wants to tell it with the wrestling fans that basically this guy has been blackballed by the pro wrestling industry for 25 plus years. And now he finally gets the chance to get his voice heard by putting this book out. But obviously with some roadblocks in the process and he'll cover that in this episode and of course you think about dr d you think about john stossel you think about 2020 and the infamous 1985 expose as professional wrestling was absolutely blowing up in the birth of wrestlemania the birth of hulkamania that was going nationwide and it was dr d with an open hand slap to the face of john stossel that caused a firestorm that ended up crippling the national career of Dr. D. David Schultz as a professional wrestler, but he wouldn't let that hold him down. He dusted himself right off, and he picked up just the uh, the regular job that any schmo would pick up. He became a bounty hunter, and we're going to hear all about the bounty hunting days of Dr. 
Mr. D, David Schultz, in this episode. And there is so much to talk about. I mean, you heard off the top. You heard the promos. This guy was ahead of his time by leaps and bounds. These are promos that you could put right smack in the Attitude Era, and they would be the lead-in for some of the big storylines, I'm sure, because this guy was an absolute natural when it came to speaking on the microphone and, of course, could back it up in the ring because he was one tough badass. And if you listen to this interview, you're going to be shocked at who he calls out as not being that tough and that much of a badass. So in typical Dr. D fashion, the shoots are in this episode plenty. So, John, as I welcome you in here now, talk to us about the David Schultz interview. Talk to us about what it means having him on the show, because for two marks like us to have a guy like David Schultz on our show, it's quite the old feather in the old capski there. So, John, tell us what we have to look forward to in this episode with Dr. D. Yes, Chad, the two-man power trip has done it again and scored a really really a rare interview something that we love to do around here is when we get some of our favorite rare guests and if you had to make a list of the top rare guests we could possibly get dr d david schultz would be probably at the tippy tippy top of that list and it's such an honor and a great privilege to be able to get on dr d I mean, you gotta love David Schultz. I mean, he was stone cold before stone cold was even a thought. You know, he was that original badass, that original heel that you just like fell in love with. Because not only was he a badass, not only was he tough, he talked a lot of shit. And it was very, very funny. Whether it's making fun of Hogan, calling him gay, which you heard on the top of the show. Whether it's, you know, calling uh, Buddy Rose fat boy and Pillsbury Doughboy. I mean, just... Funny, funny stuff from Dr. D. Always a straight shooter. Always a great promo. Always a great match. Love the way he worked. A little bit snug. A little bit stiff. I loved just his work rate. Just the way he carried himself. You know, his look. Everything about him was just amazing. And way ahead of his time, if you really think about him. Probably about 20 years too soon. If he would have came around in the Attitude Era, he would have been the number one guy. He would have been, you know, the Stone Cold Steve Austin. He would have been that top star just an unbelievable talent and it's crazy to think that you know he kind of went away for a while and basically was out of the limelight and out of the wrestling business for a very 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 long time and you hadn't heard much from him he went into the abounding uh, excuse me bounty hunting um, world and the bounty hunting realm and it's crazy to think of all the arrest and all the fights and all the other stuff that was going on that he did when he stepped out of the wrestling business, you usually hear of you know crazy stuff like that in the business, but when he stepped out of the business, that's when all that crazy stuff happened with the bounty hunting, and he became quite a good bounty hunter, which you'll hear in this interview. You hear all about it. You hear a lot of stories about that. You'll hear a lot of good stories about his run, not only in Stampede and AWA and Memphis and Japan, etc., but also, of course, his run in the WWF. He shoots hard. On Hulk Hogan, shoots hard on Rowdy Roddy Piper, shoots hard on Vince McMahon, of course. So you're going to hear a lot of good stuff from Dr. D. And like he said, you know, shooting is good. And I love that he kind of says that, you know, he's just telling the truth and he's telling it like it is. And he's just you know, kind of just, um, you know, and not pulling punches and really telling you what's on his mind and what's in his heart. So you'll get a lot of good you know shoot style stories from him you'll also hear all about the john stossel slap heard around the world what was that all about did vince tell him to do it uh, did he call him fake did he call wrestling fake i mean you'll really get 
the whole story from A to Z and you're really going to enjoy that because I really enjoyed asking him and it was really really just I just thought it was so funny just the way he you know not only you know bitch slap styles but the way he kind of reacted to that whole thing and reacted to the lawsuit and reacted to the lawsuit from Vince back to him so that's some great great stuff and, and you're really going to enjoy that you know Chad me and you met Dr. D at the 2003 Fan Slam, and, and that was just a, a tremendous day and awesome to meet him. And he got some great stories, but we didn't get the one-on-one you know time that we did in this interview. So we really, really got to expand upon some stories that we really wanted to get into, and very, very cool stuff. And obviously, one of the main reasons that we had this interview and had the chance to talk to Dr. D is because you know we're promoting the book, and you should get out there on Amazon and buy the book. It's called "Don't Call Me Fake: The Real Story of Dr. D." David Schultz, and folks, you are going to absolutely love that book. So please go out of your way. And get that book on Amazon. And while I'm talking about WWE, and while I'm talking about Dr. D, I have to talk about our WWE Network recommendation. Yes, WWEnetwork.com slash TMPT, the free month that you can enjoy by using our code. I got to give the recommendation for Dr. D. That's right. Type David Schultz into the search bar on your WWE Network. Go to Tuesday Night Titans and check out Dr. D versus Hulk Hogan. It's the finish of the match. Of their bloody war, bloody, bloody match, bloody stiff match for the WWF world title. Trust me, folks, you will absolutely love that. Great recommendation there. Go on to a WWE Network, and while you're trying to get that free month, go to wwnetworkcom TMPT. Now, that's all for me. I'm going to send it back to you, Chad, and, you know, kind of just send it up and send it away to Dr. D because I, you know, I can't really kind of put into words how awesome this was for us. And I know we were just. You know, hugely honored to be able to finally get on Dr. D. Such a rare, rare guest. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Dr. D. David Schultz. What a great recommendation because that match is not only bloody as can be, it's not only stiff as can be, but it was a strategic move by Vince McMahon to have that match in Minneapolis in a place with two AWA superstars like David Schultz and Hulk Hogan just leaving the AWA just about, you know, what, six months prior to get into the WWF. And that was a strategic move by Vince to kind of show Vern Gagne and company that we don't care about those boundaries and those territories. We're coming in and we're going to do what we want. And Schultz versus Hogan, that was a huge, huge feud at that time. And that match is very graphic and it's very bloody. But if you're an old school fan, it is a absolute must watch and is definitely one of my favorite matches of all time. But it continues that theme of Dr. D, David Schultz, being on the two-man power trip. And we were so, so, like you said, John, so honored to have him on because this is a guy who I think when we both started this show, we never thought we'd get David Schultz on. But thank God he wrote a book and we were able to land the David Schultz interview. So, folks, strap in. I did not edit this one at all. I did not clean it up. It is as raw as can be. You hear everything that we heard because he is such a great storyteller and he's so emotional with how he says everything that I had to leave in the entire interview without one single solitary minor cut. So we hope you enjoy this as much as we did recording it. And please support Dr. D. David Schultz and this book and get on Amazon.com and purchase it today. You'll hear all the information about how you can get it. So stay tuned for all the information on how you can get this book 
and strap in for what is a very fun and very informative interview with Dr. D. David Schultz. And we want to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by our TMPT Con 2. And this coming May 19th in Richmond, Virginia, TMPT Con 2 is going down. And it's going down in a huge way as we're about to announce a partnership with a local restaurant down there in Richmond that's going to be hosting a nightcap for TMPT Con 2 in Richmond, Virginia on May 19th with Eric Bischoff. And who knows who else is going to show up at the nightcap event for the TMPT Con 2 extravaganza all going down in Richmond, Virginia. Head on over to tmptofwrestling.com for more information and to get your tickets now so you can join us at TMPT Con 2 in Richmond, Virginia on May 19th. So, John, with all that being said, with all of the David Schultz hoopla that we've built up in this introduction. Please, folks, stay tuned for this interview. And you know me, I love to put on a theme song for somebody going into the interview. Can't necessarily find one for David Schultz. So please, I hope you catch the subtle nod with the title track that's going to lead in to the David Schultz interview. This is uh, definitely something that got a little chuckle out of me while I was putting it together. So I hope everybody catches the, uh, the, the little innuendo with the song title with david schultz following that so john hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to the controversial and very outspoken dr d david schultz now for some tmpt business like us on facebook follow us on twitter at two-man power trip and at wrestling pal please subscribe to us on youtube also subscribe to us on itunes please leave us a review we'd love to hear your feedback also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. Follow along with a two-man power trip as we come to a town near you. Join us in Richmond, Virginia for TMPTCon 2, May 19th at the Holiday Inn with feature guests Kevin Nash, Easy e Eric Bischoff, Shane Douglas, Mark Canterbury, and so many more. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, a former NWA Southeastern World Champion, a former three-time Stampede North American Champion, former AWA Southern Tag Team Champion. He's a legendary former WWF superstar and the man famous for the slap heard around the world. Don't call him fake. He is Dr. D. David Schultz. Please enjoy. Call you on the telephone, baby. I give you a ring. 
things that people had no idea what really happened until they read it in this book. Yeah, I mean, that's really cool that you uh, you kind of prefaced it with saying that because I think you know, we have all the information that's been out there since obviously the uh, the infamous incident in 1985, and you've talked about that at length in other interviews and doing talk shows and being one of the guys who wasn't afraid to come forward and say whatever the hell was on your damn mind, which we love. I mean, as wrestling fans, we love that. But I think it's cool that we finally get to learn the story about you because you've kind of been plucked from history, and now we get to fill in the gaps that we've been trying to wrestling fans trying to fill in ourselves for the last 25 years yeah well uh, you know people people always uh, take you know when i first started red herb welch started me down in diesburg tennessee he was probably the toughest man i ever met or got in the ring with uh i drive 45 miles to uh train as a wrestler when i got back home say three hours later my wife would have to come out of the house i'd sit there and blow the horn and she'd have to physically come out and lift my legs out of the car or truck, whichever one I was driving, and help me into the house. Now, that that went on for a couple of weeks, and then it, I started getting used to it. Uh, your body starts getting used to the torture they put you through. They don't put you through that torture today. Back then, they didn't want you in the business. If you wasn't tough enough to be in the business, they'd get you out of it. They'd take it out of you and see how tough you was, and see how dedicated you was, and see if you could take the punishment that was going to be dished out to you. And the main thing was to protect the business at all costs. So that's where Herb Welch was, and uh, after about three months, he took me outside and said, David, you're hurting these guys. Now, these are pro wrestlers that work for Nick Lewis and all over. I mean, they're older people, but they finally told him, said, listen, we got to stop working with this guy. He's going to hurt us or we're going to hurt ourselves trying to keep away from him. Well, I was raised up to I didn't mind a fight, you know. I, I love to fight. So anyway, uh, you know, he called me outside and told me, you got to lighten up, you got to learn how to wrestle. I said, what have you been doing for three months, Herb, beating the hell out of him? He said, well, I wanted to be sure you want to do it. I wanted to share this here. you got to stop doing that. Well, you've never told me any different. You know, you never told me that it would be uh, entertainment, or exhibition, wrestling exhibition. You never told me anything about it. So he said, well, I'm going to tell you about it now. So he started telling me. He got me in the ring showing me different things. And he said, this is what you do. Don't forget what I showed you, but don't let people know you know how to take care of yourself in a wrestling ring. Because if you do, they'll never use you. They'll be scared of you. And I guess people just got scared of me. I don't know why, but, you know. Uh, I guess I could outperform them, out-talk them, out-look them, out-wrestle them, out-fight them. I don't know why they got scared. <laughs> Always see <laughs> everybody real good, you know. But there's a, there's a you know, it's it's a very, a very hard road to go. I never missed a wrestling match in my whole career. I never was late for one. And, you know, I just, I mean, I did my job what I was supposed to do. And I always did what the promoter asked me to do. And I guess that was my downfall, doing what Vince told me to do. But, you know, still, I have a 100% uh, record doing what the promoters told me to do. And after I look back, I wish I hadn't done half of what the promoters told me to do. Not nothing to do with Vince. I'm talking about the promises and the guarantees and this here. Oh, my God, these guys can lie. And, make, and, and you know, that's what you're there for to get to the top. 
you're not there to stay on the bottom match all the time. When they promise you the top spot, top spot, yeah, oh, yeah, we got it coming. You work for it, and about a year, they say, hey, uh, uh, these guys want you in, uh, you know, Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, big big company there wants you, and they're going to use you. They're going to do this. I talked to the promises, same promises, same lies, but the hope was there that I'm going to get up, you know, where I can do something and make some big bucks. But it didn't happen. They did. They had their guys and their guys only, and nobody else got a chance. It's just like Memphis, Tennessee, Jerry Lawler. Always uh, the guy, he he owned part of the territory. He called all the shots. He won because he was the guy that called the shots, win and loss. I, to my opinion, this guy couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. And, uh, you know, there's several of them like that now. And, uh, you know, they run their mouth on the TV and interviews and stuff, and they don't back it up, and it's lies, and everybody knows it's lies, but they try to make them think it's the truth. It's not the truth. Jerry Lawler is in the same, same, uh, under my opinion, him and Vince McMahon should get married together. Uh, you know, they just, I mean, he does, McMahon's boy, He's he does his work for him. He goes out and he makes deals, and he always looked after Jerry Lawler, never looked after anybody else. But I guess the bottom line is you should look after yourself, so maybe he was doing the right thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anything particular, uh, you know, you want to talk about anything on your mind that you've been really wondering about? Uh, I mean, with that, I mean, just like your book, we could go on for a thousand hours. I mean, there's so much that we want to cover, but, you know, when you, you talk about being a fighter, you talk about somebody who likes fighting, you, you were the, I, I almost say you're, you're 20 years too soon because you were in an era where things were starting to go more towards the entertainment and you were still that real like every time you came on the TV, we thought you were going to kill somebody. And an evidence of that is one of my favorite matches of all time <clears throat> with your buddy Hulk Hogan in uh, Minneapolis. Yeah. That legitimately, I mean, the blood pouring out of you guys was insane. So you had to be a tough guy. But I think your your microphone skills, the promo work, that's something that was ahead of its time. So was that making you a, a dual threat that you could get on the mic and literally spew whatever you wanted, then get in the ring, back it up, and make it look as real as humanly possible? Well, that's one thing about me. What I said I could do. I never told somebody I could do something I didn't. I couldn't do. I mean, Hogan knew that I could beat him anytime I got ready. Uh in a match, but that wasn't in the plans. I, you know, we were working up to a main event, and Hogan got all scared and worried. And uh, and by the way, me and Terry was very close friends. You know, he didn't have a place to stay when he first started. He come to Florida. I met him there. You know, he wouldn't even have a place to stay staying in his van. So we took him to the house. He stayed with us, my daughter and my wife and me in our house. And you know, because you know the guy was. You know, he was green. I liked the guy. Uh, he was a good guy. And then he started me working out in the gym a little more. And, uh, you know, we really got along good, worked hard. And we had some good matches because of that. And then finally, when we was with Vince, I heard that he was telling Vince, I'm really scared of David Schultz. I'm afraid that he's going to beat me in the middle of the ring on one of these live TV wrestling shows. And, of course, 
the dance didn't like to hear that because when I'd go out, I'd make I'd make Terry work. I wouldn't let him stand around and you know show his muscles and act like he he didn't know nothing. I really made him work, and anybody else that went out with me, I made him work. Because I wasn't the guy to go out and throw a punch at somebody and miss him six inches, and the guy falls down. You know, I figured if a guy couldn't take a punch, uh, he shouldn't be in the ring. If he didn't know how to get out of a hole, he shouldn't be in the ring. He should know a little bit about wrestling to be in the ring. And uh, I just did that my whole life, everywhere I went, every show I was in. I figured if people are out there paying good money to see this, entertainment or wrestling or whatever they was thinking was going to happen, you know, it cost them a lot of money to come out there and see that. Why go out there and make it obvious that it's a controlled uh, environment and nobody's trying to hurt anybody or whatever, you know? So when I'd get in there, they'd say, oh, my God, this guy's going to hurt somebody. This guy's going to do this, do this, do this, you know? And... When I got through, I went to the dressing room. I'd get a shower. I'd go out the back door, if it was a back door, and leave. I'd just sit around and talk to fans and sign autographs to uh, uh, little uh, arena rats and different ones out there. I didn't do that. I left. And when I come up, come in, I stayed in the dressing room until my match, and then I'd go to the ring, and that's when they seen me. When I was going to the ring, leaving the ring, and that was it. Majority of the time. Some buildings you can't get out without going through the crowd, you know. But uh, that way they wanted to see me more. They wanted to see me more. And when I left, the police hated me. The security guards hated me. Everybody hated me, and I could care less because next time I come, they would buy a ticket to see me get beat or think they're going to see me get beat. And I always had that philosophy in my mind. Everybody should hate me at these matches. The promoters, the ring attendants, the people on the building, the TV or whatever, I didn't care who they was. If they come in the dressing room, if they didn't have a license for that state, I would run them out of the dressing room. And uh, finally, they started coming down on them. Oh, you can't do that. He owns this building. I don't care what he owns. He don't have a wrestling license, athletic uh, license to be here. Get him out of here until I leave. And they didn't like that, but, you know, I was okay. I mean, the guy would buy tickets, see me get beat, and he thought he knew everything about wrestling, and I'd run him out of the room, and he would go buy tickets to see me wrestle next time. And that's what it's all about, making money. <laughs> now, with, the, <clears throat> with Hogan, though, you know, you guys, you were friends, and obviously, you know, you both made your way to New York by the mid-'80s. But you being the quintessential bad guy, tough guy, and him being, you know, the cartoon, the hero, the American wave, flag wave, and whatever, do you, two, do you think at that point, had things gone the other way, that you two were the perfect pair for each other, and you almost being in that spot where Piper was because you two were just such polar opposites of each other? Yeah, uh, Hogan and me was uh, a good team. Now, Piper, uh, you know, you take a man on TV and give him about 15, 20 minutes a day to talk and everybody see him on TV, uh, you know, people's going to like him. As far as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, if he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett and uh different people that he worked with or for, uh, 
you know, and McMahon. McMahon liked the boy a lot, you know. But uh, I mean, he was okay with me. I'm not. I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. He didn't know how to wrestle. He didn't know how to fight. He didn't know how to do. He could entertain you with his mouth because they gave him 20 minutes a day on TV. And uh, if you're seeing 20 minutes a day, just about every time TV comes on with wrestling, you become a top guy. And, you know, if they don't ever see you on TV, just maybe two or three minutes, it's hard to get up that top spot. But I did. And, you know, I got on the top spot because of what I could do and what I said and what I talked about and how I did what I said I was going to do. Now, for as Hogan, uh, Hogan, uh, like I said, we were good friends, and Vince told him, hey, it's either David or me. And, of course, he went with him, and he never spoke to me after that, and I hadn't talked to him since then. And, uh, you know, it just, he he did his own thing with Vince. Vince told him, don't talk to nobody. They used to have him in a separate dressing room. I mean, the guy couldn't even dress in the same dressing room with other wrestlers. They had him a private dressing room. And he didn't, Vince didn't want him to associate with nobody. So I don't know what the cause of that was, but, uh, you know, I guess it worked. Uh, you know, he made a lot of money, had a lot of enemies. He didn't make many friends, I don't think. But, uh, you know, everybody wanted to be around him because of who he was. But or he's just real friends, I don't think so. Now, as far as, obviously, the WWF that day, you were kind of a top heel aligned with Piper, so to speak, a little bit, aligned with Mr. Wonderful, Paul Ondra, feuding with, you know, the likes of Hogan and things like that. But when that whole John Stossel incident happened and the slap heard around the world, do you ever look back and regret that at all and think, like, oh, man, I could have been WrestleMania with Hogan? Does that ever cross your mind, or you don't even care about uh, WrestleMania or, or things like that as far as wrestling? No, I, I, I did what I was told to do. Vince McMahon told me, you blast him, you tear his ass up, you stay in character, be Dr. D. And when I went out that door, I did not know who John Stossel was. I made John Stossel. Nobody knew who John Stossel was. And after that night and after that TV show and all the whining and crying this guy did, cry like a baby, and he goes out there with Barbara Walter. Oh, yeah, he beat me up. Oh, my God, I knew that guy, you know, all that, you know. But John Stossel last year on his TV show said that his injuries was eurosomatic. That means that after he got his money, he didn't hurt anymore. And he said, I didn't hurt at all after that. Well, on his depositions, he said he had permanent ear damage. The doctors at uh, Madison Square Garden said they could see no damage on his ears at all. And by the way, I didn't touch his ears. I did not touch his ears. And if you slow down the tapes and look at that, you will see I did not touch his ears. And he complained and whined and all this, and then he went to his brother. Now, get this. His brother was one of the doctors that checked him and said, oh, yeah, he's got permanent ear damage. Yeah, oh, yeah, he'll always have it. Huh. Well, do you think your brother's going to lie for you? I do. I do. And the commission doctors didn't know what they was talking about when they said he had no damage at all. They could see no damage on him. Well, I tell you, people just haven't read the whole story. They really hadn't dug deep enough. 
And, you know, Vince McMahon paid him $425,000 without asking me anything, without going to court, and I was never sued by John Stossel. See, that's a misconception. I was never arrested for anything. I was never charged with anything. Vince McMahon was. And then Vince McMahon comes back and sues me for the $425,000 he gave us, little wimp. And now I have to fight Vince McMahon, which is well-known, billionaire. And I just want to tell everybody out there, don't try to fight a billionaire in court unless you're a billionaire because they got all these slimy-ass lawyers hanging on them and ripping them off for everything they can get. But that's, uh, I guess that's the, the, what I want to say. That's the way the world is. If you've got money, you can do whatever you want and get by with it. Well, that's Vince McMahon. In my opinion, he, he should never, ever be able to run any kind of sporting event anywhere with anybody. But that's just my opinion. Poor old boy from Tennessee. So, like I said... Don't try to fight him. I just tried to protect myself. And, uh, you know, he cost me years and years and years in court. And I did nothing. Just tried to protect myself. But that's the way it goes, you know. <laughs> you learn yep. to look at it. You just say, well, that's the way it is. I'm just a product of an American justice system which is a, uh, well, I better not say that. Nobody will like me saying it's a bunch of crap, but I guess I might say it. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I just uh, it's amazing what goes on in wrestling and bounty hunting and anything nowadays. You know, it's just, uh, I mean, I heard something yesterday on the, on the television. I was watching this reporter told somebody, uh, shut up and start just, start dribbling, and now they're saying she made a racist mark. I mean, to me, that's not racist. That just can't get to work. Quit whining. Did you hear that? Yeah, she was making fun of LeBron because LeBron was uh, talking about political nonsense when he's just a basketball player. I mean, he really, you know, he needs to keep his mouth shut, and she basically said, just, you know, do your job and go keep dribbling the basketball um, and leave the politics to us. I mean, there was nothing righteous about that, I thought. I thought it was a great comment. Shut up and start dribbling or something like that. And uh, he he jumped all crazy about it. Said, uh, everything is racist. If you say something about somebody, either German, Russian, or anything, anywhere, they will go, oh, that's racist, man. I don't think so. But that's the way the world is. And if you think about you, you were basically, you know, you were protecting the business. You're protecting Vince's company. You weren't letting ABC and 2020 and John Stossel kind of say, you know, this is fake. Cause he's, you know, the little punk that he was. He basically was trying to kind of goat you a little bit saying, oh, I think this is fake. And then, boom, you know, you slapped and you hit him. That is one of the most memorable moments. And obviously, you know, you said you made his career. But one of the most memorable moments, I mean, you pull up on YouTube, you pull up anywhere. So many people remember that moment. Is that something when people see you or they talk to you, is that the most common thing that you hear from people? Is that slap heard around the world? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody refers back to that because, uh, you know, Vince told me I did a great job. And, uh, you know, later on, uh, he wanted me to take the blame for it and say that I did it on my own. You don't do anything your own in wrestling. You do what they tell you to do. 
And uh, I told him I'm not going to say that because, uh, you know, I shouldn't take the blame for something he told me to do. So he didn't like that. Well, there's a lot of things people don't like about him. But, uh, you know, we keep going. We keep doing what we got to do. And John Stossel was just part of the setup that Vince had. He wanted him to suffer for what he's trying to do. Uh, you know, make wrestling a joke or whatever, a fake or whatever. I had no idea who this guy was. I had no idea he did all these interviews with these people about trying to make wrestling look fake. I had no idea of any of that. Vince said, this guy's out here making a joke out of the business. I want you to go out to an interview with him, blast him, tear his ass up, stay in character, Dr. D. So after I went out there, there were several little interviews done other guys and him and everything, but all they showed is this here where he got slapped. And, uh, you know, at that time, with everything going on, I mean, later on I heard it on the, you know, on the rerun, the tape and all that, that John said, I think think it's fake. I thought he said it that night at that time, I think you're fake. So that's the reason I, I mean, you know, this is on national TV. And I know Vince wanted me to have physical contact with this guy to show everybody that it's not fake. This guy don't know what he's talking about. And the best way I could do it is just slap him. And, you know, he went down, and then he got up. And I was always taught when a guy gets knocked down, he comes back up, he wants more. I mean, that's the way I was taught, even when I got my gun permits and uh, my federal permits and all that. If a guy comes up, he's still a threat. You try to stop the threat. But if he stayed down, I wouldn't have went down and got him again. But he'd come up. Who knows? He might want to hit me. He'd come up that second time. <laughs> hmm. I, don't think, I don't think so, but, you know, he could have. You know, you never know. People do crazy things, you know. <laughs> now, what was so, the actual reason that Vince gave for firing you? What was it because of the, him suing you? that you wouldn't take the blame? Was that the reason that they gave for firing him? Well, that's the reason he fired me, but there were several other reasons. He said that Mr. T, that I was bothering Mr. T in L.A., uh, and that wasn't true. Mr. T and myself had a picture took together, and we talked a long talk that night before the matches ever started, just general uh, knowledge talking, you know, me and him having a good time. And then I was told, I guess Jay Strongbow instructed the cops that I was a danger and I was going to hurt somebody. So they hogtied me and about six cops took me away from the ringside and took me to the back door, throwed me out the back door, literally throwed my bags out, had guns held to my head, and I was hogtied. So the next day, uh, Vince told me that Jay Strongbow told them that I was a pretty dangerous guy to watch me, that I would hurt anybody coming up. <laughs> but he said, Jay told me, Caesar said that you're fired. Caesar being Vince McMahon. Well, they had a guy there already dressed to take my place that night. So they was planning on firing me anyway that night. They just wanted me to, uh, you know, that was just, Jay Strongbow told the cops, come get me. I was out there watching the matches. And after they got me, Vince, he said, Vince said you're fired. You know, Caesar said you're fired. Yeah, right, whatever, okay. And then they took me and threw me out the back door, 
threw my bags out, and I had to get to the airport to get on a plane. Next day, I went to see Vince, and he said, well, it's just all, uh, that's what Jay Strongbow told him to do. Jay Strongbow always trying to blame somebody else, see. Jay Strongbow never did nothing on his own. He didn't have enough sense to do anything on his own. None of the people who worked for Vince McMahon did anything on their own unless Vince McMahon told them to do it. And I don't have to tell people that. I mean, it's obvious that's what he does, you know. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's very, uh, you know, you work so hard all them years and you get up there and you've done nothing to nobody and he sends you out and do this and wanting you to do something so he can say, hey, we can fire him, you know. He, you know, we need to we need to get him to break the rules or or something because I never missed a match, I never missed a date, I never missed anything, and I was always there on time. And he had no reason to fire me for anything, and he had to create something to satisfy Hogan's little whim that he's gonna get hurt or somebody's gonna beat him or something. You know, I don't know what exactly it was, but. You know, these guys, and the only reason I'm remembering all this stuff is writing this book, going through all the forms and the depositions and everything from these sites, you know. And these guys have told lies, and both of them, I mean, when you got two two people ask the same question, and both of them got an opposite answer to the question, one of them's got to be lying, Stossel or McMahon. McMahon said that he told Stossel, stay away from me, stay away from the wrestler, don't go back there anywhere. Stossel said McMahon told him to come back and interview me. And then Vince tells me to go do that. So, you know, you figure it out. I don't know anymore. <laughs> I tell you, it's funny when you start thinking about it. So, you know, but it's part of uh, the history of David Schultz and wrestling and then I decided after that I had to do something, so I became the world's greatest bounty hunter, which was uh, I had more fun at bounty hunting uh, than any wrestling I ever did. And the reason being, it was dangerous, and nobody could do it as good as me. And I have a big record of capture. I never missed anybody. And when I did, actually, I'd be looking for somebody in uh, maybe six months. Sometimes it took me a year to find them. But the law would get them somewhere, you know, stop them and run a check on them, and they'd lock them up. So I don't need to look for them no more. So I quit looking. But they just beat me to them, you know, uh, another state somewhere or something. But it was a very rewarding career, bounty hunting. And then you probably don't even know this. See, I went to Poland the country Poland and worked as an engineer for Sikorsky Aircraft for three years. Didn't no. know that at all. <laughs> Didn't exactly. know that at all. I was shocked. Wow, you just shocked me. Didn't know that at all. That's right. Nobody, nobody, uh, I mean, John, I told John about it. I said, you know, you could do a good thing about this. Well, we've got enough wrestling bounty on I said, well, that's not part of my life, though. You know, this was a big part of my life, three years working for Sikorsky Aircraft in Poland. And I run two aircraft plants for their division, Sikorsky's division on the helicopters. Uh, you know, I mean, you got to be doing a good job, go for 90 days, and you say three years. So 
that was another big time. Great job, great people, good company. Of course, it's a good company. Uh, made good money, and uh, you just had to be away from home. And my wife came over frequently, though, and enjoyed Poland, beautiful country. Uh, Sikorsky, beautiful company to work for. And, of course, I was the boss over there, so that helped. <laughs> they was uh, very nice people, though. Very, very good country. Beautiful country. And, uh, well, in fact, you ought to go. You know, I, am of, say, uh, I am of Polish uh, descent, so that wouldn't be bad. I, I figured that. And uh, let me tell you, the greatest people, I mean, I've been everywhere. Germany, beautiful country, beautiful people. I was there for three years in Germany. And, uh, you know, Italy, I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. Uh, I've been everywhere, but there's no better people than the Polish people. These, uh, these people, I'm talking about other countries and everything, but beautiful people. Work hard, very smart, and a uh, beautiful country. I can't tell you how beautiful the country is and all the castles and things there. I mean, I really, I learned a lot. When they told me Poland, I thought I was going to go over there and uh, there was going to be no tractors, there was going to be no combine, there was going to be no this here, that there. Well, when I got there, there was no tractors, was no combines. <laughs> I'm absolutely right. And the kids all gathered the wheat in the fields and stacked it up because they didn't have tractors or anything. Very poor country, you know, at that time. But uh, then I started seeing tractors every once in a while. And, you know, the old women, here's the important thing I like about The old women walk their milk cows just like you walk a dog every day. They put them on the leash and they walk them down the highway. And they had no fences there hardly because there's no money to build fences. They drive a stake in the ground hook the collar up on the cow, the milk cow, and let it eat for four or five hours, six hours, the circumference of that leash, you know. And they come back out there around dinner time and take the cows back to the barn, probably a half a mile, mile, whichever direction they're going. And there'd be four or five women, four or five cows. All of them have one on a leash. And they take them in, milk them, and after they go eat dinner, they come back, take them to a new, new spot, put them out there, let them eat the grass. First country I've been to where you see women walking cows. <laughs> I've seen cows walk. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's crazy to think of, of you kind of out there. It's just, you know, hard for me to think of, uh, you know, the uh, the tough guy bounty hunters out there in, in Poland, like living off the land and uh, and hanging out. So what's it like if, if I were to work for you out there? What's it like working for, you know, a Dr. D? Is it going to be the guy that uh, punks out guys? Is it going to be, like Piper said, is there the rumor of you punking out Vince in front of people? Is that the kind of boss you're going to be? You're, you're, you know, in everybody's face, or are you kind of more laid back? No, 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 no. I'm not a violent person. I've been married 48 years to the same girl. Went to junior high school with her. I mean, you know, and, uh, you know, I got gun permits. I got federal gun permits. Uh, I have, uh, I couldn't tell you how many different weapons I have. And, you know, you don't get to be that way with people, say, punching people out, knocking people out or whatever. Let me tell you, I protect myself. If a person comes up to my car and he reaches in my car trying to get me, well, I'm going to eliminate that threat. And probably one punch is going to do it. Uh, as far as uh, beating people up, when I was growing up, we had to beat people up to keep what we had because we lived on the poor side of town and everybody wanted what we had. 
because they thought we were easy pickings, but it wasn't that way. A man want what I got, he's got to take it. I'm not going to walk off and let him have it because he says he wants it. And if he's got a gun on me, surprise, surprise. If I'm close enough to get a hold of that gun, I'll probably stick it up his rear end and then take him to jail. I mean, you know, I'm not scared of a gun if I can get to it, if I can get a hold of it. Now, if he's 10 feet away, I have no, I have no, I can't do nothing about it. Just plead with him, deal with him, not beg or cry or anything. Just try to talk some sense into him. But if he shoots at me at 10, 20 feet away, then I'm going to have to seek protection somewhere behind the car. And all it's not running from him. It's just the law. You cannot pursue a threat. And in that book tells about several occasions that I was arrested by police departments and it tells also several occasions where I was awarded uh, thousands of dollars by being false arrest. They they arrest me falsely. And, I mean, you know, they tell me I couldn't go in. Sure, I can go in. You have no authority over me. You either go in and get the guy or I'm going in. No, nobody's going in there. Probably a snitch or the police bomb. They didn't want me to go in the door. I said, well, I'm going to break the door down as soon as you walk off. Uh, well, you're going to jail. Then. Well, whatever you got to do, you got to do. So they searched me and found about three guns on me, all totally legal. They locked me up, let me go. We go to court, and the judge uh, said, David, is there a such thing as resisting an illegal arrest? I said, not as I know of, Your Honor. If you're arrested by a police officer, you have no recourse but in the court of law. You can't tell the police you didn't do something and fight him and try You can't do that. It's not the way it's done. Anyway, she dismissed the charges, and we sued the Hartford Connecticut Police Department and settled for, I don't know how much it was, $25,000, $30,000 or whatever, just to, you know, so they could clear the case up. I thought we could have got a lot more, but it wasn't a thing about getting money. I just, uh, and then I went back where they arrested me and wouldn't let me arrest this person. I went back about three or four weeks later and arrested this person at the same door that they arrested me at. So, see, now that's exciting. That's exciting. I mean, you know, you get arrested at this house, and they take you to jail, lock you up, take you to court, and you're found, and they dismiss the case. And now you've got to go back and get this person, and lo and behold, they're at the same person, same place. It just wasn't uh, so many people around that time, you know. And I got in the door before they knew who I was. And, uh, well, it's all over. Hey, me, they're in jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a satisfaction, uh, you know. And plus, the people you go and get, you know, I had kidnapped. I had two girls kidnapped one time. They had it kidnapped. I didn't have them kidnapped. They wanted me to go get them. FBI called me and says, hey, we've been looking for these this guy and these two girls for Years and years. I think it was three years. I have no idea where they're at. We need you to help us find them. Well, okay, I can do that. And uh, how much bonds on them and all this. They said, well, we'll get all that straightened out, but we'll give you $2,000. Let us make the arrest. Oh, I said, okay, you're welcome to make the arrest, but, you know, and $2,000 now. Don't you make the arrest. Don't you? You just tell us where they're at. So after about, I don't know, six months, I found them another country, called the FBI, they missed them. They got away. 
So the FBI, I said, man, he said, listen, this time when you go, no, it ain't going to be this time. I'm doing it myself. I'm through with you people. You people don't know, you don't know how to go out and arrest a person by yourself in another country. You want to take 20 or 30 people with you. I don't need 20 or 30 people disturbing me and tipping everybody off because I'm in the area. Oh, please. No, 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 no. So I think it was about three or four weeks later, I, you know, I'll let you read the book about that, what happened, because uh, I hate to disturb some people. will say, well, did he get them? Did he didn't get them? Did he do not? Or what? 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 <laughs> i read it and find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I think the most interesting part about you becoming a bounty hunter is that you really, you turned finally into the good guy, and we rooted for you as a bad guy, but now we got to uh, actually see you be the good guy and collect uh, those uh, those heels, those bad guys. So did you like the actual uh, do-gooder work? Was that something that you found to be really uh, something you could thrive off of, was playing you know, the hero in some of those roles? Well, it, it paid good money. That was the main thing. Money was the cause of me being a bounty hunter. Because Vince McMahon put liens on all my property in two different states, and uh, you know he wanted everything I had. And he wanted me to pay the $425,000. And I had no real, I had no idea. I, I had no idea I could ever be asked to pay that. But all these lawyers and all the depositions, all this, this, here. And I happen to have all of them, you know, thinking about doing a book with those depositions. <laughs> the illegal depositions of John Stossel, Corello Rivera, Vince McMahon, Linda McMahon. I have all those full depositions. I'm just waiting on the legal aspect, if I can print them or not, which is fascinating, uh, you know. But, no, I, I tell you, bounty hunting, the people that I picked up, thousands, and let me tell you, over half of them, maybe three-quarters of them, I would trust before I'd trust my neighbor. These guys had no, I mean, you know, they, of course, they they skipped out on the bond, and the reason they skipped out on the bond some of these police departments pick these kids up and they take them to jail and they find a, a joint in there or a, a butt of a joint in their car and they say, no, we didn't, that's not mine, you know. And uh, it probably wasn't theirs or it might have been theirs according to where you're at, what police department. I'm not, let me tell you, I'm not putting down police departments. Some of my best friends are policemen, but some of them don't need to be policemen, but that's, you know, everybody's opinions and stuff. The police do a great job for us, and I thank God for them every day. If you have to go and get somebody, the police will usually not go with you because it's not their right to do what you're doing. You're, you're, you're breaking down doors, entering without a search warrant or anything else. But, you know, these guys, I never had to fight the five guys out of thousands that I picked up. And the fights didn't last long. One punch, boom, boom, suplex, hook them, put the cuffs on, it's over. And uh, most of them, all, I mean, they didn't care. They come right with me, you know. And some of them tried to struggle with me and sneak away, but they couldn't do it because I'd get them on the ground, it's all over. That's when my herb welt stringing come in the hand. <laughs> you know, these guys are not, I mean, you know, I go downtown New York City. And I guess you know where New York City is, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay, you know where the Grand Concourse is? It runs yeah. from Harlem to, okay. I'd go down there at 12 o'clock, uh, 2 o'clock in the morning 
by myself and pick people up in those buildings, you know, where they have all the buildings, 2,000 families in a building and all that, I mean, in that area. And I'd go down there by myself, 2 o'clock in the morning, and pick people up and bring them out of there. And I had no problem whatsoever. And I just let the police know I'm there. And the reason I let them know I was there because I didn't want them to come down and shoot me or somebody down there. And the guys would say, okay, Doc, we're going to wait for you. If you got any problem, we hear it. We'll be coming in. And I want to know I was there. Hey, I'm D, man. Yo, ho, I'm D. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, yeah, we got you there. That's okay. And my only bad time was when I looked over and I thought there was a puppy coming out of the side of a building. And I went, I love dogs, you know, so I went, come here, but look at it. It wasn't no puppy. It was a rat. <laughs> yeah, it was a rat. That big. And I tell people that, and they say, no, you're kidding me. Yeah, go down there and see yourself then. Find out yourself, yeah. you know. Huge that's somebody rat. who's never been to New York, that's saying that. That's somebody who's never seen what New York has to offer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and even walking down there, if you've never been to New York, you go to New York, you're not going to be down there at 2 o'clock in the morning. If you are, <laughs> you're going to get robbed or beat up or whatever because they can spot you. When you get out of your car... Uh, you got people looking at your car. It's probably not going to be there when you get back. Uh, if you break down up there on one of the roadways and you somebody come along and give you a ride to get help or whatever, and uh, your car is not going to be there when you get back. It may be there, but you ain't going to have no tires on it. Wheels, they're gone. I mean, within 10 minutes, they're gone. But uh, people don't understand that, see. They say, how can they do that? How can they? Hey. Uh, who's going to stop them? I mean, the police don't want to uh, go over there and uh, be sued for interfering with people on the interstate. I mean, you know, the police has got their hands tied. In most of these uh, states all around, they got their hands tied, what they can do and what they can't do. And people say, well, why did they do that to that guy? Why did they do Hey, if they didn't do that, they'd probably be dead. And they don't understand that. People have no idea what these cops go through. And now I'm out there by myself going through the same thing and worse. And people said, how did you get him? Well, I went to his house, knocked on the door. He comes to the door, and I put him in cuffs. Oh, my God. You mean he answered the door? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, even other, other states I'd go to, California, I went out there a couple times, several times, really. And one of the police officers, I, I reported him, I was going down to this complex and uh, it's about 2 o'clock. That's my time work from 12 to 5 in the morning. That's when you catch people. You don't catch people during the day hardly. But anyway, I, I reported in and asked him. I said, uh, you think I can get a couple officers to go with me? He said, nope. He said, we'll stand by, but I want to tell you, you got two gangs down there. If they see you down there, or if you're messing with them, you're going to have a problem. If you get this guy, you need to get out of there as fast as you can. And I was once again, Crips in the Buds. I, oh, yeah, I dealt with them. That's okay, no problem. So I went down, knocked on the door, grabbed the guy, and he didn't have no pants on, had underwear on. I grabbed him and cuffed him and told his old lady, and I said, he needs pants. And I said, we need to go now, get him out of here. Well, we was going in the car. He was in the underwear, and he's carrying his pants. He put them on before we got to the airport and came back to Connecticut. But, you know, you can't hang around there and have dinner and coffee and talk to them, birthday party and all that. 
Because, you know, they ain't going to let you take a pie there if they know you're there. But I had the same problem in Jamaica. I had the same problem in San Domingo. I had the same problem in Atlanta, Georgia. I, had, I mean, you know, but I overcame. I adapt. I became a serviceman. I used to carry shirts and stuff. So I'd go to the uniform stores every once in a while on my travels. I'd go in there and look around, trying to kill time, waiting for somebody to show up or something. I'd buy these shirts, UPS. FedEx, uh, Baller Makers, uh, you know, some of my service departments. Because New York City, if you've got a shirt or an ID, a jacket on that says uh, New York Utility Division or Baller Division, they will open the door for you so fast because <laughs> they do not want to do without heat. <laughs> hey, the baller man's at the door. Somebody open that damn door. Get it open, <laughs> you know. Now you're in the now you're in the building. You're okay, you know. But don't go up there without something identifying you as a person that's going to help them or something, you know. And uh, you know another. I don't think he wrote about this. I used to take my insurance policy, life insurance policies, and I would white out my name, and I'd put the name of the person that his family, like his wife, say he was dead. And I'd put a thing there looking for his wife away. Anyway, I'd show her mother. She don't know where she is. She has not well, seen her in six months, eight months. Well, the girl would be on a $100,000 bond, drug bond, drug bond. And I'd say, well, got an insurance policy here for her. we got to get get a hold of her. If we don't find him soon, it's going to be turned over to the state treasury. And I don't think she'll ever get it, you know. So, and <clears throat> next day or two, she'd give me a call and say, well, She's going to be here Thursday. She's coming through town about that insurance policy. Cause I let the woman read it. Everything looked real, you know. And mm-hmm. her husband died of AIDS or something a couple of years ago. And I said, he took this out on her, and she's the beneficiary. Well, I got called everything in the world when I put cuss on her because <laughs> she called me everything, took her in. And the bondsman called me and said, David, that woman down there says you've got a $10,000 uh, insurance policy for her. I said, that's right, Paul. You go down there and bond her out, okay? <laughs> he, oh, I ain't going to bond her out. How, how do you do that? And the judges, I'd be in a judge courtroom. I've had them say, yep, yeah, uh, you know, I got money coming from that bounty hunter. He got a check for me. And the judge looked at me and said, David, you got another check on another person? I said, no, Your Honor, I don't have any checks. <laughs> and they just, you know, I, I mean, you had these little uh, funny times, you know, it kept you going how to beat these people, how they're thinking, uh, you know, because back then it was the beeper. You didn't have cell phones. You had a beeper. And you had to call, you know, you'd get a call on that beeper. Now you got to go find a phone because they didn't have the, the phones like they do now, you know. And uh, once they called me on the beeper, though, I'd have their telephone number, and then I could run that down, find out where they was calling from, and I'd have the address, you know. But... It was very, very exciting. And John Cosper, nice guy, man, nice guy, one of the nice guys. His family, great family, great writer. And, uh, you know, he he just, he he was fascinated about bounty hunting because anybody who's never done it is reading the book and they're saying, oh, my God, I didn't know that. I didn't know this. I didn't know that. And then they, they don't forget about wrestling. They're on the bounty hunting now. <laughs> but it's, let me tell you, it's one of the best books. My wife has read it four times, 
And she told me, she said, David, this is the best book I've ever read. And she said, not because of you, it's because of the way it's written. I cannot put it down. She said, I'll be in here uh, reading, I'll go to the kitchen, and then I'll mess up and open my mouth, you know, and say, hey, don't stay out of that kitchen too long. Well, there goes my supper the next two days. But <laughs> mentioned don't stay out of the kitchen. You get that? <laughs> Absolutely. I it's great. Did, right? yeah. But, uh, you know, it's uh, she's a good girl, though. I just open my mouth sometime when I shouldn't. Uh, anyway, she said, David, it's a great book, man. She said, I've lived this life with you. 48, I knew everything they're talking about in this book, but I have to read it again. And every time she read it, she come out with new facts that she said, I missed this in there. You know, cause I guess she gets so excited reading it, and she wants to know what happened. She said, John is one heck of a writer. I said, yes, he is, Peggy. Very thorough, works hard, and very nice guy, you know. And I'm just glad I found him. And I hope he's still with me on the second and third book uh, because of the response we're getting off these books, off uh, Amazon, off EatSleepWrestle.com, is unreal, the people buying these books. I was on the way over here this morning. I sold three on the way over here by a place I stopped down here asked some questions about something, and they heard me on the radio here at one of the TV shows here that talk radio. And they asked, did I have any books on me? I said, yep, got a few here just left over. Can we buy them? Yep, <laughs> you know. And, hmm, it's, awesome. and, I mean, it's unreal what, how people has received this book. The only thing about it, they want to talk to you about it. They want you to give them more details, and if they read the book, they'll get the detail, but they want more details. They want to know why you're picking a girl up in a dirty clothes closet with bugs falling out of her hair with a jack-o'-lantern smile. <laughs> You'll read about that in the book. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it, it, it is. It's a good book. It's a good read. And wrestling has been good to me my life. I, I have no regrets from it. The things that happened to me in wrestling, the bad things, uh, it shouldn't have happened, but they did, and I learned from them. I learned a lot from them, and uh, still, you know, I feel like I could learn more. And uh, you know, right now, if a person asks me to get in the ring, I laugh at him. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm pretty old, old man. <laughs> but hmm. if he challenged me to get in the ring, I might hurt him. <laughs> I've had a few guys actually come up and say, you know, you're an old man. I don't know if you could have one of these autograph conventions, you know. And I said, who are you? They say, I'm, I don't know, Gabbo, Gabbo, Gajubu, or whatever. And I say, yeah, well, I don't know you. He said, well, I know you. I've seen you hit that reporter, and I ought to just slap the hell out of you. I said, well, what you need to do is just go ahead and do it. I'm not going to block you here in my face. Go ahead and slap me. And there'd be some guys around the autographs and they'd say, oh, hell, everybody get ready. Doc, going to beat the hell out of another one here. And this guy would be 450 pounds. <laughs> and I'd sit there and I'd say, go ahead, man, take your, take your best flow. But remember this, after you hit me, it's my turn. Your mama is not going to know you after I get through beating you. 
you understand me? And the guy looked at me and said, oh, yeah, oh, that's what I thought. Get the hell out of my way. And I'd push him, tell the light going by and walk on off. And you'd hear him say, he is an asshole, ain't he? Ha, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I mean, these guys, you know, they, they think because they rascal with uh, all these companies now, they can come up and just uh, tell me, no, it's not that way. I mean, you know, it just makes me so darn mad for people think they're badasses and they're going to run over me or anybody else. I don't allow that, you know. And I, I don't care how big they are. You know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Matter of fact, there are some interviews with people in there that are wrestling now. Some of them are movie stars that weigh 400 pounds. Two guys, identical twins, probably tougher than most guys Vince McMahon ever put through the business. And Vince refused to use any of these guys because I trained them. So they went out to the movies, and they're movie stars now. And you'll read about that. See? It's so fascinating that people say, well, tell me who it is. Tell me who it is. No, go buy the book. Find out yourself. <laughs> but these, these guys, you know, got one on there was talking about, uh, oh, my goodness, this guy is unreal, man. He said, we used to go. Right now, he was one of the biggest bail bond companies in Connecticut. And he started off, uh, you know, he didn't have a high school education. He's 400 pounds and uh, kind of dumb, very strong, very tough, Italian boy. And good guy, very trustworthy. And he tells stories about uh, things that I did. And he said, you know, you cannot be told about David Schultz. You have to be there to find out what David Schultz does and how he does it. He said, we was going down the road. And he said, I was almost 350 pounds then. And I think I was about 22 years old, bad to the bone. And he, David had, had an apple. And he said, you got a knife, David? I said, you don't need no knife. Squash it, break in half, you know. He said, well, I can't do that. And the guy has 22-inch arms. Vince uh, pressed 500 pounds. And he tried to squeeze it out, but he can't do it. So he handed it to me. I squeezed it in half, busted it right in half, and handed it to him. He didn't shut up. He didn't shut up about that all the whole trip. I said, I ain't going to bust no more apples for you. <laughs> but he tells the whole story about what happened. <laughs> And he said, man, this guy, you have to be there. Everybody's, everybody, you know, and I didn't realize these guys felt that way about me. But I trained these guys to be wrestlers and stuff, and most of them went on bounty hunting uh, expeditions with me. I had one guy, Mr. Universe, uh, used to be Mr. Universe, is Ken Passarello. He was one of the greatest guys I ever took on uh, uh, hunting, I call it hunting trips. And Kenny said in the book, you know, he tells about going to the back door. And he said, my God, there's no light. You don't know if you're going to step on a guard dog. You don't know if you're going to step on a snake. You don't know what you're doing. There's no light in the back of these houses in Florida out in the country. And David went right to the front door and got the guy out of the house. And the guy told him where the guy was, 150 miles away, 200 miles away. He said, my God, I was glad to hear that. So we get in the car and get out of there. But he said, you don't know what's happening in the backyard, man, when you go behind a house. And he told the whole story, which is in the book. And I did get the guy. And uh, matter of fact, one of the policemen that was there called to the scene when everything broke loose where I picked this guy up. He looked at me and he said, you're Dr. D. I said, yes, sir, that's me. 
He said, I used to wrestle with you in Pensacola, Florida, and you beat the hell out of me every day. Now, this is a policeman sent out to the thing in Tampa, around Tampa, Florida, that I wrestled with 20 years ago. And I said, well, what was your name? He said, I was the Red Baron. I wore a mask. And it just come back to me. The guy, once you told that, you look at him, you can remember the times that he got in the ring where he'd be telling him. I said, I hope he ain't mad about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's how small this world is. You never know who you're going to meet around the corner. And you don't burn bridges. I tell everybody that you don't burn bridges, you know, you have to cross them again. I said, if you got a bridge you want to burn, don't burn it. Just light it and let it burn a little bit and put it back out where they know you're there. And uh, a lot of guys say, what you mean? I said, oh, nothing. I'm just talking, you know. You don't want to take time explaining to them about bridges and burning them, you know. <laughs> anyway, hey, you got anything special you want to know? Because, you know, you get me started, I can talk all night, but I just, I mean, oh, yeah. I've had a life that uh, most people just think about, you know. They just, they say, oh, my God, how do you do that? How do you do that? I've been around the world about six times, been to Japan five times, uh, I've been in Germany, I've wrestled all these countries, and... Uh, Last time I was in Japan, it was with Antonio Noki, and he said it was one of the toughest matches he'd ever been in. And it was a very, very tough match. It was almost what they call a shoot. But we were both professionals, and we knew that when the guy had me, when, when Antonio Noki grabbed me and he hooked me, I knew I was hooked. I didn't have to stand up and tell nobody. He knew it. I knew it. And he let me go. You know, just let me slip away. And then I'd hook him same way. I said, I got you, big boy, and I let him go. He knew he would beat, but we was entertaining in front of 100,000 people. And we were both professionals. We're not going to ruin the match or the atmosphere or the the wrestling game that we was working at. Uh, I mean, to satisfy an ego that I was mad at him or he was mad at me. You don't do that. You know, you go out and do your job. Get out and leave. You got a problem, you go out and meet the guy on the side of the road somewhere in the rest area and settle it there, you know. And I never had to do that, but I've offered to do that to several people. And, uh, you know, oh, no, Doc, I didn't mean to cause no trouble. Well, yeah, I'm worse than that. Shut up and stop the dribbling or what, or start dribbling, whatever they said. <laughs> I got to listen to that again. <laughs> <laughs> I like to, I like to repeat them good sayings like that, you know. But uh, anything, any, any, anything on your mind or the other gentleman's mind that you you've been wanting to ask, and Definitely, you can ask you know, me. Yeah. You know, as we we start to wind down a little bit here, I really want to ask you because you were kind of a big legend in Canada, and especially stampede wrestling and obviously if you just look at the book you see wow bret hart wrote the floor for the book so what's the relationship like you know you're a legend in canada awesome at stampede wrestling north american champion three times over uh stampede wrestling hall of famer so what's it like with bret hart Stu hart and the hart family up there in canada when i got the call to go to calgary uh in stampede wrestling i just finished a tour in nova scotia with emile dupree which in Nova Scotia, you can just wrestle about six months a year. The rest of the time, it snowed over, you know. So I got up there, and I met Stu and the family, and I, I really uh, I met Keith Hart in Japan, and they was asking me to come up there and 
you know, when I went up there, I met Stu, tough guy, man. This guy was tough. He didn't fear no man. And that I started working with Bret Hart, and uh, he was, uh, I mean, he was a tough kid, man. These guys rode up in, uh, with Stu wrestling in the, in the basement. They called it the dungeon. But they wrestled now. Stu taught them guys how to wrestle and how to take care of themselves and all that. When I got up there, I taught them how or helped teach them how to do professional wrestling, how to control the crowd, how to talk, how to do this, and how to go out and still have a good match. But, you know, and Brett turned out to be great, man. This this kid was great. He, uh, you know, just he didn't want to put a bad impression when he comes to the WWF. You know, you get there, you have a fight the first night or two. That, you know, you don't want to do that. So he just kind of held back and let people kind of talk about him or whatever, talk about the Hart family and all this without starting any trouble. So I had one old guy up there really get him one night, and I had to tell the guy, hey, why don't you get me, man? You want to get somebody, leave this kid alone. You don't know. This kid will stretch you. He'll take you out there and stretch you like, uh, uh, what was that, uh, Rubber doll they had you stretch. I forget what it was, but I told him that, and I said, you leave him alone. You want to fight, somebody fight me. And from that day on, that boy didn't open his mouth to Brett in the dressing room. And he was supposed to be a badass. A lot of people are supposed to be badasses, and they're not. They've just got a reputation of being bad. And uh, and then that thing they can come up to me, and uh, even in Canada, I had a lot of them come up from England and stuff. they come up there to wrestle, and they thought they was bad. They come up and say something to me and uh, tell me what to do or whatever, and I end up knocking them out. Just you know, I mean, I ain't got time to talk to them. Don't want to talk to them, so just get rid of them. And then they'd be out of there in no time because they were no good anyway. I can't even recall the names of the people I had trouble with. It wasn't that many, but you know, long trips, long trips, and. Uh, you had great people to work with, and you had the Cuban assassin, you had Hercules Ayala, Red Hart, uh, Keith Hart. Uh, I mean, these guys was absolutely great to work with. Bruce Hart. Bruce Hart was uh, so easy to work with because he was more of a, a baby-faced mama boy, you know, looking at him. I mean, it was easy to work with him. And Brett was also easy, but Brett was a tough kid. You know, he was one of the tough ones. And Keith, which was uh, he, he was he a fireman. I think he retired from being a fireman, but he was a very good worker and a uh, good guy. And then uh, you know, Stu Hart. I think he had twelve or thirteen kids, and uh, you know, very good, very good guys. And I enjoyed that. I was there three years. Loved Calgary. Loved the whole thing. Saskatoon, uh, uh, Saskatchewan, all through there. Uh, B.C., loved that area. But, you know, after you're there three years, now you get a call somewhere else and you figure, well, I've been there three years, I need to move on a little bit. And I did. Uh, probably the worst move I ever did. And then I went to Portland, Oregon, stayed there a while, and then got a call for, to go to Bergogna in, in AWA. That's where I met back up with Hogan. And then that's how we left there and went to the WWF. But Calgary, I loved that place, man. You had a lot of miles, but, you know, very good territory to me. It was, I enjoyed it, loved it. And uh, 
Nova Scotia was great territory, too. I love that place. You know, you knew you had six months. That's all you had, so you have a good time while you're there. And uh, then you get back to the United States, you get back in that same old rut, all the promises, all the things, and, <clears throat> you know, excuse me. But that was life of a wrestler, you know. Move here, move there, stay six months, a year, go somewhere else, or, you know, and uh, they don't care about you either. They tell you to come there, you go, you rent an apartment, sign a lease. Two weeks later, they give you a notice. So, oh, we, uh, we got to let you go. Hmm. What about all these deposits I put up, all the money I put up for this apartment, did this, did that? Oh, well, yeah. Uh, yeah, right. But that's the way it worked. I mean, you know, that's part of life when you're traveling around and trying to do some good and, uh, you know, just. But I love Canada. I have no problem with Canada whatsoever. Pensacola, Florida, a great territory. Uh, Knoxville, Southeastern Wrestling, Southwestern Wrestling, uh, uh, Eastern Wrestling Alliance. Uh, all these guys was super places to work. You just had to be careful because of the promises they make, you don't take them at heart because they're not going to happen properly. Hello. Now, <laughs> now, you had such... You know, I was just trying to take it in for a second, but you had such a great career that people don't realize. You know, Bob did the John Salas thing. People kind of get obsessed with that, and they think about that. But, you know, you mentioned AWA in Canada and Japan against Inoki and all those legendary things. Do you have a favorite match or something that sticks out besides that? Because I remember Nick Bockwinkle was a huge match for you and a huge feud. Uh, Wayne Ferris, Honky Tonk Man, another you know huge feud that sticks out for you. Do you have a favorite match or a favorite opponent or something that sticks out to you above all the others that we haven't mentioned yet? Well, there was a guy named Tony Charles. He was uh, from over in the mine, coal mining district on Wales, I think it was. He was a small guy, but, you know, in good shape. But uh, this guy, I had so much fun working with him. It was like a night off, and so you know, such knowledge this guy had about wrestling. He could probably have beaten... Uh, eight out of ten of the wrestlers in the business today. But he would go out and he would work with guys that uh, anybody, and he'd make them look like a million dollars, treat them good, work them good, and they just kept using him, using him, and using him. I never uh, put anything on, no belts or anything, because, you know, he's a short guy, but what a fantastic worker. I used to look forward to that match, and a lot of matches you go in, you say, well, I got this one, I got a you got to plan an exit or whatever in case things get out of hand, you know. But Tony Charles was a great worker, fantastic worker. And people like Ron Fuller, a uh, good worker, he was 6'9", and I think his arm was about six feet long or whatever. He hit you in the ear with his inside of his forearm and his hand wrapped around your head and hit you on the other side. And, uh, I mean, you took a beating when you worked with him. But, he didn't complain about you beating him either. So he was fantastic. And uh, Bruiser Brody, great worker, man, great worker. Easy guy to work with, just a little stiff, but that was okay. He didn't mind you beating stiff on him. That's the way he worked. Don't complain. Come on, let's go. And, you know, you learn a lot from people like this, you know. you uh, Tough guys, and they're just taking care of the business, and 
when you're in the ring with him, you say, man, what did I do? What did I do that make him mad want to beat me up? Like, that's where he works. He didn't, he didn't have nothing against you. Just come on, let's have a match. If you're out here to wrestle, let's go. Let's work. Come on. I mean, and a lot of them you get in there with, they don't want to do anything. They want to get four or five minutes lead, you know, go to the bar or whatever they do. And, um, but, yeah, I enjoyed all of them. I didn't have no matches that I didn't like. I mean, just certain people were easier to work with than others. Uh, some of them was like, uh, you go an hour, no problem. Some of them you're lucky to get 10 minutes because of the the way their head was on their shoulder. They wanted to be uh, on top all time during the match, and that wasn't going to happen. You know, so you had to control the match more. Made it harder on you. Made it harder on everybody. But that's the name. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's, uh, everybody's different than everybody else, you know. Just some people get it, and some people don't get it. <laughs> now, Dr. Yeah, Steve, before we bring it back. Like, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, before we bring it back, um, before we bring it back to the book, uh, I just got to ask this, you know, you, you, had, you shared a lot of great stories, and obviously the book is loaded with them about not just the wrestling world, but the bounty hunting life that you had and what you've done post-wrestling, but what do you think the biggest misconception is about Dr. D? I mean, we've all heard, uh, you know, countless wrestlers give their take on your career. We've heard, you know, we, you've been blackballed from the industry, but what is the misconception of Dr. D. David Schultz? Well, you know, people say I was out of control, I was crazy, I would uh, mean, I'd beat the hell out of people, I'd do this, I'd do that. And, uh, you know, that's not right. I just made a living like everybody else, and I'd do my job, and I'd leave and go. But I didn't let people run over me. I, just, I mean, I tried not to. The promoters run over you, can't do nothing about it, either take it or leave, you know. But I didn't let people uh, come up to my face and say, uh, you're a piece of garbage or whatever. Well, that's when I just dump them down like a garbage can on them and let them feel what it's like, you know. But I had to get out of there. My wife told me I couldn't do that no more. I had to stop it, you know. So, And, you know, I've been in places uh, where people see me, they, uh, they hate me from the way I look. I mean, they just, you could tell they hated you and they've never really known you, it's just that the word of mouth said you're such a badass or whatever. And, I mean, you know, people ought to, ought to walk a mile in my shoes before they say something like that. But, you know, you got to hate somebody, not hate. That ain't the word, I don't guess. But you got to dislike somebody in life, or you would be upset, I guess, you know. Uh, I don't dislike many people. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, it's very hard to like everybody all the time. But me, uh, I mean, people just don't understand what I went through, and they don't understand where I've been and what I've done with my life. And that's what the book was all about, to give them a chance to understand who I am and what I've done, where I've been. And I'm still going. I had a guy the other day ask me, you in pretty good shape? Well, yeah, I, I guess so. He said, well, uh, uh so you can take care of yourself? I said, uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I have one more good fight left. You want it? Oh, no, 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 I don't want it. <laughs> I mean, you know, they just uh, freak out when you say something like that to them, you know. And then when they see me, they say, damn, man, you're in great shape. Well, I don't want to say great, but.
said, okay. And, uh, you know, I don't weigh 300 pounds. And, uh, you know, I guess I'm about 235 now, but that's because I chose to be 235, you know, to lose weight. And I didn't need to be big no more. But uh, I'm in fairly good shape. I should be able to hang around a few more years, I guess, maybe. But you never know. Never know where you're at, what's going to happen. <laughs> well, we definitely, we, after all the stories everything, we definitely can't call you fake. So bringing it back to the book, let's get one more plug out there for it. Don't call me fake, the real story of Dr. D, David Schultz, written with John Cosper. Dr. D, please share with the fans what they can get when they get this book, what they can uh, kind of be in store for, and let's give it one last big plug before we, uh, we wrap it up here today. Well, you know, they'll, they'll find out the, uh, basically the whole story about John Stossel. They'll find out how many years I've worked at pro wrestling, how many championships I had, how many matches I had, how many territories I went in, how hard I worked to get where I was to be snapped up Monday by a guy like Vince McMahon. And then he thought I was going to roll over and die and never be heard of again. And then I became one of the, if not the best, bounty hunter in the world. Bar none, all I mean, I was the best and still the best. And then understand that I've worked other countries and traveled all these countries and did all these jobs and, uh, you know, who I was, I survived. Ben McMahon wanted me to, you know, he said, well, we take all this way from him. He's going to pass, you know, pass away. That's it. Ain't nobody going to remember. No, I survived and I thrived the whole time. I got a nice little compound, and I stay in that compound most of the time away from people. And, uh, you know, the reason I stay away from them because I don't want to be around them because most of them are after something, and I have nothing to give them. <laughs> I just bigger, I bigger people, you know. I got enough. I got my wife and uh, you know my kids, my grandkids, and my dogs and my pets and my horses and cows and uh, you know I got everything I need. I got too much, really. I mean, but uh, they will they will understand about Doctor Big and what I've done and how I've done it, and they'll definitely understand about bounty hunting and. Uh, you know, the things I went through to be the greatest bounty hunter in the world. You know, we've been trying to work on for a long time called Bell Jumpers, a movie, a weekly movie, and it's still on the table. We're working on it. But, you know, there's all kind of unproofs there. And you read the book, you'll understand a lot more about me. And I know you will enjoy it. It'll probably be the best book you ever read. <laughs> Definitely. I'm so pumped that we were able to talk with you today. And I got to tell you, I'm not stealing a phrase from Stossel here, but I hope we didn't just ask you the standard questions that we kind of diverged and went a little bit deeper. <laughs> I'm not a fake. I am not fake. I'm an entertainer. I'm an exhibitioner. I'm a BSer. Uh, I, I'm not a fake, though. Anything but a fake. And you can call me anything else. You can call me a redneck. Uh, uh, you know, really, you can call me anything you want to. I don't really care what you call me, but I am not a fake. Anything but fake. I'm not a fake. <laughs> I'm the real deal. That's right. You are Dr. D, and we appreciate you coming on today. This has been a huge, huge accomplishment for this show because you are, like I said at the top, one of those guys that we've been dying to talk to for the couple of years we've been doing this show. So we appreciate the time today, and we want everybody to check out that book. Go to Amazon.com. 
Get Don't Call Me Fake, the real story of Dr. D. David Schultz. Dr. D., thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, sir, and y'all have a nice day, and I'll talk to you another time. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.